Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. Welcome to Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast that's thinking of relocating to Amsterdam. If you like our lovely theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, you can now buy it on iTunes and other digital platforms and hear what it sounds like without me talking over it. This week, we'll be talking about the Electoral Commission inquiry into the Leave campaign's creative financing, Irish Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's red line on the question of an open border in Ireland, which prompted the son to tell him to shut his gob, and Daniel him again Hannan to refer to our closest neighbour and ally as the other side. And the Leave voting heartlands who are now asking for special protection against the consequences of the thing they voted for. We'll also be discussing the Brexit regretters. Are they sleeping giants or paper tigers? And in the interests of blowing our metropolitan media bubble to smithereens, we experience the psychedelic parallel universe depicted in the Daily Express. <laughs> Ian Dunt is away, basking in the glory of becoming the first Romaniacs presenter to be picketed by real live Brexit supporters in Bath last week. We're all nauseous with envy. But we do have our regular Brexit sleuth, Peter Collins. Hello, Peter. Have you ever been picketed? Sadly not. Scorned, scapegoated, mocked, ridiculed, insulted, taunted, derided, but never picketed. Not I mean, yet, anyway. I mean, if you can actually bring people out onto the streets with placards, you've achieved something. Isn't he a bastard? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus this week's very special guest, Suzanne Moore, is a prolific columnist for The Guardian and one of the few people who can claim to have written for both Marxism Today and The Daily Mail. She also stood as an independent candidate for Hackney North and Stoke Newington in the 2010 election because she was so disgusted by the other options. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for coming. I wrote for The Mail on Sunday. Different paper to the Daily Mail. Oh, it is. It is, actually. It is, no, it is. No, it, I mean, very much so is now. Was, it, was there such a big difference then as well? Yes, in certain ways, yes. I mean, it's um, obviously Dacre is in control of everything, but the Mail on Sunday always had a slightly, slightly more liberal line, uh, slightly more pro-European even, I would say. You can see some of this stuff coming out in the coverage now, actually. Well, they seem very different now. Mm -hmm. I mean, and actually, the Mail on Sunday seems to to be actively wanting to kind of wind up the Mail. (laughs) Yes. Obviously, I was there as a kind of fifth columnist to write against the grain of the editorial. I I was I could do what I wanted. It was yeah. Do they have anyone like you now? (laughs) I mean, he's just allowed to kind of be a sort of you know free thinker and not kind of toe the line. Um. I don't think it's the same. They used to have an old format, I don't know if you remember it, where they'd have a sort of right-wing man and a left-wing woman. And when I first started, I was up against Norman Tebbett, and then it became Peter Hitchens. Oh, right. But now it's still Peter Hitchens and Rachel Johnson. Uh, I mean, she's... Didn't she say I would say left-wing, <laughs> but she's sort of... Well, you know, I think that's... Liberalish, that's, isn't she? Yeah, liberalish. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I did it... Partly, obviously, because they paid me extremely well to do it. But also, um, I'd been at The Guardian and Independent, and I was aware, even in those days, and that's kind of pretty much pre-internet, that I was in a bubble. Mm. And that I was preaching to the converted. And I still feel like that now, actually. I mean, I knew what I was doing at the Mail on Sunday. And sometimes I don't know what I'm doing in The Guardian. (laughs) Do you, do you, do you, I should not say that, should I? <laughs> Catherine Viner, please do not listen to this section of the programme. Do you, um, do you rile many Guardian readers? I mean, what sort of... Yeah, it's not actually easily predictable. And on this Brexit stuff, I mean, it is interesting that it's not a clear left-right divide. I think I riled a lot of Guardian readers by not being that supportive of Corbyn. Clearly, people wanted and expected the paper to to represent Corbyn. Uh, But, you know, I mean, one of the biggest things, mailbags that will 
I've ever had in my life was when I said something nasty once about Morris dancers. I mean, they're just really, really organised. <laughs> they are. They, they, they really are organised. I mean, they campaign against you. And I quite, I don't, you know, I just made a throwaway remark. You just sometimes, you can write something and you think, oh, yeah, I think this will get someone going. And it, it, never, it doesn't particularly. And then you just say something that you think everybody thinks really... <laughs> And you're slaughtered. It's a very, it's it's not a popular thing to say, but it's a very powerful lobby, the Morris dancers. Well, I, they really are. I mean, now now I've experienced their wrath, I know that. <laughs> we'll be talking to Suzanne more later, but first here's Peter with what they call the housekeeping. I suppose that makes me the housekeeper, the Mrs. Doubtfire of Romaniacs. Anyway, don't forget you can support Romaniacs by pledging a small amount to us on Patreon, the crowdfund... I always get caught on that one crowdfunding platform. Send us whatever you can spare each month and you'll help us develop live shows, videos and all sorts of stuff. And of course, keep this podcast going. This studio costs money, you know. Those very desirable Romaniacs t-shirts, mugs and bags will be coming to our early Patreon supporters soon, so sign up via Romaniacs.com and you can get yours too. Plus, we're opening a Romaniacs Christmas market with other merchandise, not the exclusive stuff that Patreon supporters get, but it is going to be perfect gifts for all the friends, the family and that angry Brexity uncle that you want to annoy. Order by the 8th of December and UK deliveries will arrive in time for Christmas. Wonderful Patreon backers, we're sending you a 15% off code for the Romaniacs Christmas Market to say thanks for your support. Everyone else, well, you can sign up for Patreon too and get 15% off as well, if you like. Have a look at our wares at romaniacs.myshopify.com and find out what Father Brexmas is bringing you. Thanks, Peter. Now, like a speeding cargo train full of bullshit, here comes the news. The Electoral Commission has reopened its inquiry into spending by the official Vote Leave campaign during the referendum. The Commission says it has new information and is looking again into whether Vote Leave exceeded the £7 million limit on campaign spending. It's also investigating whether Darren Grimes, the schoolboy-faced leader of Believe, a pro-Brexit youth campaign, incorrectly reported the donations he got from Vote Leave. And likewise, whether Veterans for Britain, a group which put forward defence-related arguments for Brexit, wrongly reported its donations from Vote Leave. This is a separate inquiry from the Electoral Commission's two investigations into the financing of Aaron Banks' unofficial Leave.eu campaign, including trying to establish the ultimate source of some of its funding. So where could this lead, Peter? Well, it, it's it's interesting. As far as I understand it, the Electoral Commission, it can issue fines, uh, but it can't send you to jail. It has to report the matter to the police. But what it can do is come up with a report that will allow somebody to petition the High Court under the Representation of the People Act and all the other electoral acts to have, in theory, to have it overturned. Remember a couple of years ago, the, um, the, mayor, the election for mayor of Tower Hamlets was overturned in the courts and was rerun. That theoretically is possible but obviously not very likely and even if we got close to that even if amazingly shocking things came out about what the leave side did it would take a long time it would have to be they'd have to petition the court the court would have to hear it there'd be presumably an appeal so i think the chances of us having a rerun of the referendum are pretty small lovely as that would be Uh, what could happen it seems to me is that if especially if the electoral commission comes out with a report in good time on all these inquiries and says, you know, all sorts of really unacceptable things did happen and maybe issued some fines for people, that I hope would allow some Leave supporters to think, actually, I was duped here. You know, that's what we want to see happening. Uh, It could change the course of public opinion. (laughs) I'm not sure because I think that the details of this stuff are so are very intricate and you have to follow these stories incredibly closely to be 
moved by them. And if well, if the idea is simply that you tell Leave voters that some money went in uh, and, you know, not that much is going to happen about it. I'm not, I'm not sure how much it will sway opinion. I mean, obviously, I think Leave needs to be, uh, and Aaron Banks in particular, needs to be investigated in all sorts of ways. And the ways that, that all these... Um, this conspiracy stuff is tying up with Cambridge Analytica. Um, if anybody has been following all that, it's it's really quite scary. And it's also to do a lot with the relationship of social media to political campaigning. So it's 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 bigger really than 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 the than the referendum. I suppose my hope would be that um, you know even if it doesn't obviously affect the referendum result or even affect Brexit in any way, is that lessons would be learned for future elections because if this works this time, yeah. it will be used again. And there's so many issues to do with sort of misspending and foreign interference and, you know, social media manipulation. And it's like, at, at the very least, we have to be aware of that and take action against it for future elections. And following on from what uh, Suzanne said about the fact that it's all a bit complicated and may not have the impact, I think the key thing is the if there are any sort of penalties at the end of this. So at the moment, uh, n- you know, not only is it complicated, a lot of the newspapers, the Brexit newspapers, didn't even report the story. It's on the front cover of The Guardian today, mm. but I couldn't find anything on the Telegraph or Express websites at all about this. However, if they come out with penalties for these people that makes it a bit harder to uh, to 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 ignore and you can then if you're trying to use this to change public opinion you can say all right forget about the complexities these people have been done they they have been faced uh, um, in extreme cases conviction or at the very least fines for basically breaking all the rules in their campaign that, that affected your, your vote. I mean that might help if we, if we at least get some kind of prompt um, sort of fines or penalties of some sort. Yeah I doubt it will get through the Express's fantasy firewall but True. you know maybe the Telegraph would have to give it a little down pager. <laughs> Next up, the threat by the Irish Taoiseach to block any progress on the Brexit talks without a written guarantee from Britain that there will be no hard border between Northern Ireland and the South. Leah Varadkar said this after what was said to be a frosty meeting with Theresa May on the sidelines of an EU summit. This prompted The Sun to do its bit for Anglo-Irish relations by publishing a screeching editorial saying that, quote, Ireland's naive young Prime Minister should shut his gob on Brexit and grow up, and calling him a buffoon. How did this go down in... Highland. It's unsurprisingly not very well. Uh, you know, here's, here's and they phrased it so carefully. Indeed, well, indeed, yes. Um, here's a quote from the Irish Labour Party leader, Brendan Howlin. He said it was jingoistic, ignorant, bullying and ageist. And, you know, I, what I'm glad to, to see is that he also made the point that, although he said it's like, it's like the bad old di- days when, you know, British people were habitually offensive towards the Irish, but he made the point that uh, this is a not, not the view of the majority of pe- British people these days. It is just the sun and a few other people who, who hold, still hold these kind of old-fashioned attitudes. And the sun said that the, um, that the Taoiseach sort of suffers from the delusion that he can single-handedly stop Brexit. But, I mean... He can. He does have sort of power to, to block a deal. Well, as far as I know, he's got a veto over the deal because mm. all, all the EU leaders have a veto over the deal and the EU, the, the, the Commission and so on, have already made it clear that the Irish border issue is is a red line for them, that, that, that we can't go back to a border. So, you know, he'll, he'll clearly have backing if, if he does try to veto. And he, even if he didn't have backing, he'd still have a veto. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I've got a lot of family in Ireland and I always, um, one of the things that came out from the referendum is not even English people being anti-Irish, but having absolutely no knowledge whatsoever. Most people say to you, you know, what do you mean? Are you going to Southern Ireland or or, you know, they don't know there's a border. They don't know what happens. You know, there used to be watchtowers. There used to be an actual border. Now you just drive through. People really, really don't understand. And maybe we'll talk about that later. I mean, I think this is part of the problem, that there is a kind of breakup of the United Kingdom. And uh, most people don't consider Northern Ireland part of the United Kingdom, clearly. And now the Sun-style Brexiters, once again, just sort of uncomprehending that other countries might have important priorities of their own Mm -hmm. like the entire thing is always why aren't they thinking of britain why are they getting in britain's way and it's like because he's not the t-shirt or you know equivalent of of britain he's got his own people these these very pressing concerns and whatever the irish equivalent of the sun is is presumably right behind him it's just this kind of willful refusal to accept and obviously this is happening with Merkel as well at the moment mm. who's got quite a lot on her plate in Germany and again it's just none of that registers it's just like they should all be thinking about how they can help Brexit yeah, we've had this fantasy today that uh, um, from Rhys Mogg and co that um, somehow the, the crisis in Germany, the coalition crisis, is an opportunity for us that the, that's going to make them more desperate to do it. Well, this is just... It just isn't true. I mean, what it means is that they're going to be concentrating more on their own affairs. And you could just as easily, if anything, easily, more easily imagine that they're going to say, oh, we're sick of Brexit. Britain Britain can just go. Mm. We've got our own problems at home. That seems more plausible to me. And I think, I mean, Ireland is really really interesting because it's a place that's both absolutely benefited from being in the EU and punished by it. Uh, They've really been through, you know, they really know about Europe. It absolutely changed their economy. They absolutely suffered austerity because of the demands of the EU. But on the whole, people want consider themselves to be in Europe, in Ireland. And, and it's been absolutely crucial to them, you know, modernising Irish society. You don't hear so much about, um, I'm sure Melanie Phillips was talking about this, about, you know, a few months ago about Irexit and, and how it seemed obvious to her that Ireland would want to leave. Not hearing a lot about that anymore. No, I think it's because the word doesn't work. I don't think you can just put exit at the end yeah. of country names. It's, you know. Exactly. Well, yeah, but the, the other interesting thing that is happening is that although the DUP has so far said it doesn't want internal Irish borders, I noticed this week, particularly after this something and after Barad Carr's comments, that people on the unionist side are beginning to worry that, about the other obvious solution, which is to not have any borders within Ireland, to have a border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. That would be fine for nationalists, but for unionists, that is... No, I mean, Sinn Féin are yeah. very... Yeah. You know, this is exactly <laughs> what they would like. And that's, that, they should be worried. I mean, of course, these are, these are the people who are propping up the current uh, government in Westminster should mm. be very worried that, you know, that is a solution. Mm. It's, and it's an obvious solution to actually move the customs border. You can try and fudge it, but that would be a real shock for the unionist side. Oh, boy. That was my, my, my closing insight. <laughs> <laughs> and now for our final news topic this week. Some of the most pro-leave bits of England have started campaigning for special protection against the ill effects of the Brexit they voted for. As Jenny Russell pointed out in The Times, in Grimsby, which voted 70% for Brexit, the seafood processing industry wants special free port status because it imports most of its fish from other European countries and it's worried about tariff barriers and custom checks after Brexit and the possible loss of all the workers from other EU countries that keep its factories running. 
In South Tyneside, which voted 62% for Brexit, the local council is pleading for its EU grants to be replaced by ones from the British taxpayer and for continued free trade and free flow of migrant workers. Stoke-on-Trent, 69%. The potteries are calling for continued free trade with the EU for British ceramics. And in Cornwall, 56% pro-Brexit, where farmers are already... Sorry. And in Cornwall, 56% pro-Brexit, where farmers are already worrying about a lack of migrant workers to pick their crops, the county council is asking the government for an exemption on post-Brexit curbs on immigration. Now, you don't want any of these sort of industries to suffer. You don't want any of these jobs to be lost. But to quote one of the all-time great tweets by author Adrian Bott, I never thought leopards would eat my face, sobs woman who voted for leopards eating people's faces party. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) There is a little... You know, in, even when trying to be kind, there is a little bit like with one, there are consequences that a- actions have consequences. And indeed, did yeah. you not think this through? Yeah. Well, of, we, I suppose we should say that in uh, some cases, the the kind of business groups and maybe even the local councillors or whoever who are calling for protection may themselves have been remainers. Mm. But the the point is, a lot of these uh, industries uh, which are going to be hit by Brexit, uh, a lot of their workers will have voted for Brexit because. You know, they are the largest industries in the area and there were very high uh, votes for Brexit. So what clearly didn't happen is that the workers in, the, in those cases didn't think, is this going to hit my job? As, as you say, that, that it's cl- I, to me, that's obviously it's their fault as well for not thinking of it. But it's also maybe the fault of their employers for not saying, look, for goodness sake, we'll be screwed if we don't, don't vote to leave the EU because this industry depends on it. So it's, you know, a lesson for the for, for the the business lobbies didn't do enough to 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 say and what you know to people that whose attention they had their own workers mm. that this is this isn't a bad move and once you start with these sort of exemptions and uh grants i mean surely sort of virtually every part of the country could make a case for this absolutely you know, we've if, we've already had it of course with this mysterious uh guarantee given to nissan you know i think it's shocking that we're not actually told what have they been guaranteed? And if Nissan gets it, uh, all the other car manufacturers will, will say, well, you know, we're entitled to the same, same, and presumably they'll have actually some legal force in saying that. Certainly they'll have some moral force in saying it. We've had this week the announcement that the uh, European Medicines Agency is leaving Britain and the European Banking Authority is leaving Britain because, of course, as non-members of EU, we won't be able to host those. So a lot of the industries, particularly the pharmaceutical industry, is based on uh, the fact that the regulator has been here. You have all these sort of organisations that deal with the approval process and the research process for medicines. They are here and therefore a lot of the kind of manufacturing and other jobs are here because the, the agency was here. So they'll be saying, well, we're all off to Amsterdam and Paris, the bankers too, um, if you don't give us some kind of handout. And you know, then the, the list, just you're just running through all the lists of Britain's main industries. Well, a lot of the right-wing Brexiters want a kind of, uh, you know, a sort of neoliberal free trade paradise and slashing slashing red tape. But it it seems that there's a possibility that, you know, if there's there's sort of enough demand from from sort of voters and workers and businesses, that you end up going in the other direction, where, you know, where sort of the state is constantly expected to intervene to prop up industries. Like, it just seems, it seems to be pointing completely the other way. um... I just I can't remember actually where today I read the poll about nationalisation and how many people are right firmly behind that concept. I think some of this stuff about uh, you know basically an economic argument and economics remaining quite abstract to people is because 
I mean, this hasn't just happened in the referendum that people actually vote against their own economic self-interest. It is something that people do. And so right now you can pick pick these examples and say, you know, oh, look at these stupid people in Grimsby. Why didn't they think about it? But actually... People do, you know, I think this is one of the difficult things about the referendum is people, it was carried on emotion. And you can you can pick this apart in economically and people are every day saying, look, 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 look at this, this is terrible. But you've actually got to persuade people in, a, in another way because the economic argument, well, you know, we know that the, some of it was lies. We absolutely know that. But... But there was something going on that was bigger, which was, uh, to me, um, about identity, which trumped the economic argument. And for some of these areas that voted leave, well, (coughs) you've you've interviewed a lot of people, Doreen, so you know, but there are still enough people who probably will suffer more than anybody of the metropolitan elite, but are really still convinced that this is the right thing to do. And that's that's hard, you know, to... um, I think I think you're right, and it was a, it was a problem that uh, a lot of the Remain arguments came from people like ourselves, the metropolitan liberal elite, saying you'll be sorry if you mm-hmm. do this. Uh, we won't be, but well, you will be, and it's feel, very difficult to get a, see, that across think, without being patronising, isn't it? Well, I think people felt they didn't have a lot left to lose, and then right now a lot of people are saying, well. You did actually have something yes, to lose, yeah. and this is what it is. Now, how much that changes things, given that we still have a Tory government who are pursuing Brexit, we possibly could have a Labour government who will also pursue Brexit. I don't know. You know, I mean, there can be a certain damage limitation that Labour do, but um, people stand to lose. I mean, there's no question about that. Yeah, that that sort of feeling that you got with people just going, well, almost that, well, it can't get any worse. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of evidence that it, that it of course, it can get worse. I there's mean, a great it, deal of ruin in a nation, as somebody once said. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like, is that a reggae lyric? It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a first. It's very good. From Jar Peter over there. <laughs> or was it Adam Smith? <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Where is it from? Adam Smith, isn't it? Is it? Yes. I honestly thought it was a reggae lyric. <laughs> I think it's Adam Smith. Write in and tell us if we're wrong. <laughs> no, it was Aswad. In- <laughs> <laughs> Part of our Easy ongoing mistake. quiz, Easy Adam mistake. Smith or Aswad. Easy mistake to make. On to our first topic. As a brutal psychological experiment, we've been reading The Express every day, and now we're furious and scared and ready to take up arms against the Euro bastards and use capital letters in particular places so that it seems like we're shouting. Reading Britain's angriest tabloid is like entering the upside down in Stranger Things. Everything is weird and dark there, and you end up covered in gunk. The Express seems to be a series of questions to which the answer is always Brexit. The news page of the website on Monday, we're recording on Wednesday, was pretty much wall-to-wall Europhobia apart from a ghost ship in California and a cat that lost its tail. There's vilification of Macron, Merkel et al., approving coverage of every pro-Brexit figure, and some stirring pictures of good old World War II. On Tuesday, it quoted the governor of Mississippi, clearly an expert on Europe, who said that Britain should do whatever it wants, including bending the laws of space and time. Get us back to the future, he demanded, where we once were. (laughs) Even more alluring than time travel, though, is the prospect of nuclear annihilation. The top trending topics are in order. I'm a celebrity, North Korea, Strictly Come Dancing, Brexit, The Weather, Donald Trump, YouTube and World War III. It's the only newspaper website with a section specifically dedicated to World War III. (laughs) 
Suzanne, you, you've, you've, <laughs> I mean, you've had some tabloid experience, not, not with the Express. People always say when they're talking about Dacres, they always say, well, you know, say what you like about it, but he knows exactly who he's aiming at and it's got laser targeted. Who do you think the Express is for these days? Well, it's sad, actually, because the Express was once the newspaper of the north of England, the working class northerners, and I don't say that in any patronising way. It was a good thing. I remember, you know, I was at the Independent, then Rosie Boycott went to edit the Express. She tried to get me to go. They really had an idea then that they were going to make it. The, the, you know, the fancy has always been that you have a sort of lefty liberal tabloid. It's never, ever been achievable. Tried to do some, some stuff. Then, of course, Richard Desmond, the pornographer, bought it and it's become now um, a sort of ghost of itself. And A yeah, ghost ship. A ghost <laughs> ship, yes. Um, I think the, what you ask me is absolutely true. I mean, the way newspapers work is we know what a Daily Mail reader is. We know what a, what a Guardian reader is. OK, they're stereotypes, but we know what they are. When I worked at The Independent, for instance... I was never really sure who read The Independent except Vickers because they was Vickers always wrote to me. So <laughs> it's a problem now for The Express. We know it's an elderly, you know, declining, uh, fairly, to use the cliche, the left behinds, really. And uh, this kind of perennial sort of sub-Daily Mail interest in royals, in war... Um, seems to to really appeal to them. But, you know, they have had some good writers. They weren't always this kind of ridiculous cartoon. Well, James O'Brien on on LBC, he actually started his career at the Express under Rosie. Rosie tried. I mean, Mm. I think she was kind of um, tied in what she could do. But, yes, there was a a bit of a fantasy that we could, uh, that it could be a serious tabloid. Now it's it's almost, uh, I mean... You can't. Un- I, I, what I can't understand is why you would buy that when you can buy the Daily Mail, just because the Daily Mail is thicker and has lots more to read in it. But maybe that's part of the appeal. You don't have to take long to read so it. Obviously, I'm kind of like making fun of some of its concerns there for cheap laughs. But Suzanne's point, the, 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 the message I really get is it's aimed at scared old people. You get that sense from the Brexit coverage. Yeah. Uh, you see story after story in the past week where they're saying that somebody not very important who's pro-Brexit savages, in capital letters, someone from the Remain side in some debate or other. And, of course, on the online version, you can see the clip and you, you watch it and it's just, well... So what? It's as if they're saying, look at the video, look at the video. We won this, didn't we? We won, didn't we? Didn't we? It's a bit desperate, isn't it? And you, you've been looking at some of the front covers yeah. of, of your actual print version, yeah. the one that says 10p, and yeah. it goes and cheaper than the Daily Mail. Indeed. <laughs> not actually 10p. And their covers are very much the fears of the old, aren't they? Yeah, indeed. Well, they've got, they had a big piece about care, home costs rising in the past week as a, as a, as a splash. And they do a lot more health covers than I thought they would do. Oh, that's, um, that's really they, important. Indeed. Yeah. As coffee can prevent cancer, statins can give you diabetes, that sort of thing. There's a lot less Lady Di than I expected as well. I only saw one story um, in my scan, which is that apparently she would, some royal expert you've never heard of, says that she would have approved of Prince Harry's girlfriend or something. And Brexit? Uh, (laughs) I'm amazed they've resisted that temptation, but there you go. (laughs) But it's... um, Part of being the metropolitan elite is not to understand, I think, how much the price of newspapers matters to people. Um, When I was at the Mail on Sunday, you know, I, I kind of had... 
well, I learnt really what sells newspapers, and it isn't necessarily headlines like like uh, these crazy headlines. It can be a free wine offer. It can be the Sun offering a trip to Calais, you know, Dover to Calais ferry. It can be the astrologer. So we can all have this sort of view that it's the politics that sells the paper, but the price above all is important to the kind of people that buy the Express. It really, really makes a huge difference. And sometimes, of course, it's, you know, you assume sometimes that the reader of a particular paper, you know, is sort of buying into the whole worldview and particular things. And I remember when I worked on, um, I started my career on, on Mixmag, and we, we you know, we, we you know, take a lot of care over the features and should we cover this and that and is this review accurate and so and so. And then I was on the tube and I was watching someone with a brand new copy of Mixmag and they just went straight to the club listings at the back, looked at it and then closed it. And it was just like all of this kind of, and I had a feature in there. That, and I thought, oh, it doesn't really care. Mm. And so like with the Express, of course, we're scrutinising it and going, ah, oh, what are they saying about Macron or Barnier or... And and probably a lot of people they they might just be buying it for I don't know is, is Rupert the best still in the Express crossword or something? When I when I was at the Mail on Sunday, I don't know what the figures are now, but um, it was something like forty to fifty. I think it was forty percent. Some in the forties of their readers were voting Labour at that time. Okay, I, I don't know now. Mate, it's probably less, but. Uh, just the assumption this is a right-wing newspaper. And then if you ask, of course, the mail, one of the difficulties for the, with the mail, for me, as a sort of as a feminist, if you like, is that it's one of the papers with the biggest female readership. And if you ask women why they, why they read it, it'll, it will be often the health, the health features or the mad crop circle features or those kind of well, things. Well, when they do those studies of who votes what, you know, readers of which paper, yeah. you know, even with, with after the referendum... You know, there was a percentage, not a massive percentage, but a percentage of Express readers who voted Remain. Yeah. God, God knows what they're getting out of this paper, but it's it's not the politics. And what was interesting is that although it's true that, you know, you can you can look at the drastic decline of these papers, here's some figures. The Express used to sell 4 million copies a day in the 60s in its heyday. Uh, in the past year, it's down 7% again to 369,000, and it's just going down, down, mm. down, down, down. So, so we can say, oh, well, the few remaining people are not really looking at the politics. But yet in uh, in in... Westminster and among the sort of the broadsheet newspapers and the kind of broadcast media, what the Express and the Mail say is taken very, very seriously. It's, you know, there's a review of the papers every day on the BBC mm. and all this kind of thing, several times, in fact, a day. Um, so the, the, the point is, I suppose, that maybe we should be taking a little less notice of them. Mm. Well, I think they're, I mean, their power is obviously, as proven by the election, their power is waning. I yep. think that's why they're getting, a lot of them are getting angrier and more bitter. I mean, yeah. the sun seems, I mean, the sun was never lovely. But there seems something particularly cornered and nasty about well, it. Well, the Telegraph as well. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah, it's yeah. quite hard to understand what's happening. That's almost become a tabloid paper in its, in, 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 its on its front page. Yeah. And, I mean, when people study the, um, in America, the Fox News effect, and again, this appeals to a lot of kind of scared, angry older people, and this is, mm-hmm. this is their, I mean, Fox is obviously more terrifying because it's 24 hours and this is their sole source of news. And this explains to a large extent, you know, the way that there's so many people where it's just nothing, no bad news about Trump or the Republicans or, you know, Roy Moore, the teenager-loving Senate candidate, um, seems to sort of penetrate. It's just like they are so saturated with propaganda. And, and, and I've heard you know, somebody on a podcast, I can't remember, talking about how he'd seen his parents become sort of unrecognisable to him because they had bought into this 
world completely and there was just no sort of dialogue and you know without get it sort of you know too high-minded about the role of journalism here and every publication has its biases but i don't i mean the guardian is not fabricating propaganda for the left in the same way you know i don't think what the express is doing is sort of comparable one expects a sort of slant but when the whole thing seems to be driven by by propaganda and strictly i don't know um i don't know when people talk about having a dialogue with people who mm. express I, I don't know whether that's possible what will be interesting now is if the Mirror Group, Trinity Mirrors, uh, the, the parent group of the Mirror, actually succeeds in its takeover of the Express, which is you know it's it's, it's trying to buy. What do they do with it? it? It's particularly interesting given that the decline of the Mirror is even more alarming than the decline of the Express. The Express was down seven percent in the last year. The Mirror was down twenty percent. So it's not exactly a successful company taking over an ailing company. It's an ailing, a very ailing company taking over an ailing company in circulation terms, at least. So do you think they'll try to go back to the <coughs> uh, Rosie Boycott thing and make the, the Express a liberal paper or a set middle-of-the-road paper or, or what? Well, I don't know, but I was thinking as you were talking um, about the idea that the, uh, you know, the investigation into leave and... What I really, I think we're all kind of grappling with is how much social media affects how people vote and how much this old print media does and obviously in how much television does. And it's really quite hard to know at the moment because it seems, you know, I don't imagine, but this is just me, I don't imagine that most Express readers are on Twitter, for instance. So it's where do people get their information, which things they believe, which sources they trust. And the the, the kind of bubble you were talking about of the, the people who, you know, during who watch Fox News. I mean, America is very interesting because all news is kind of local in a way. And uh, often people just do not have a sense of the wider, wider uh, country. I, I'm wondering if it's like that now with if you if you buy the Express and watch the BBC, you know, there will still be a vast, a lot of the arguments that go on on social media will completely bypass you. You will not be influenced one one way or another. I mean, I think because we're, we're journalists, we tend to kind of think that we try to be anyway across these things, mm. but most people don't have to be. Yeah. And nor should they be because it's a kind of nightmare <laughs> to, to try to keep up with everything. But with something like the referendum, you know, the, the criticism was that people just didn't know enough. Well, you know, you could study it all for 24 hours a day and you still don't know enough. I mean, it's you've got to be fair on people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One last oh. point on tabloids before we, we move on. Uh, I thought it very, very, very interesting this week that Paper Chase, the retail chain... Mm -hmm pulled a promotion with the Daily Mail because of protests. It was, the, you know, the, the Stop Funding Hate campaign uh, leading the protests that they actually thought, we better not do this. Um, that's, I, I hope, is a sign that the sort of the lock that the tabloids have had on public life is maybe uh, loosening. But, but then Ian Martin from The Times uh, said that in protest <laughs> he would not shop at Paper Chase ever again, oh which, was, which, was a, which was very sort of partridge. And I just imagine him throwing like a year planner out the window. <laughs> and so obviously Paper Chase's uh, stock price has plunged <laughs> since the Martin boycott. Now for a proper chat with our special guest Suzanne Moore, one of my favourite columnists. I'm not just saying that because she's sitting there looking at me. <laughs> In the last couple of weeks alone, she's written about sexual harassment, boys in tiaras, the legacy of Charles Manson and the uselessness of the current government. In a, in a Guardian Q&A the other week, she said, a good column is sometimes like an antenna that has just picked up the background noise. Now, I wonder, 
because we live in a time where certain themes, Brexit, Trump, the collapse of the sort of government, they just seem so ubiquitous. You think about them every day, you know, God help you, you might even talk about them to people every day. As a columnist, how do you make sure that you're covering all this other stuff? Because you don't, you're not one of those people that has like a hobby horse that they kind of like ride to death. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I feel I try to cover a variety of subjects to keep myself interested as well as the reader, hopefully. My interest is not so much Westminster politics, but cultural politics. So I am interested in, you know, what Charles Manson means as, as much as I am interested in um, whether Theresa May is going to carry on another week. Uh, but how? what was the question? How do I, how do you pick the subjects really well just sort of where do you get your ideas from no um, no, it was more sometimes how like how you just escape this sort of the suffocating ubiquity of the kind of giant issues of our of the last two years and just find all this other stuff is it is it like an is it an effort is it just your brain is naturally looking for things that are not yeah i mean obviously you anybody who writes has to read a lot and sometimes there'll be a subject where you just think oh my god everyone's had a go at this one and i I don't think I've really got anything else to say. For me, it's really important that that I'm not in an office, I'm not at The Guardian, I'm not at Westminster, that I'm, you know, this might sound very sort of um, snobbish, but but, but that I'm on a bus or I'm in the playground at school. Not anymore, my children are too old, but, but that I'm listening to... That I'm not that I don't go around with headphones on. That I listen to what people are saying. That I'm that to me is where I find the thing that interests me because I can hear that other people are talking about it sometimes. Or sometimes it's just you know something that I am drawn to. But something massive, you know, like like Trump or Brexit or, or, or the rise of Corbyn, all these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to take some time out. I'm stepping back because if the role of a columnist is to comment, and sometimes, but increasingly, people are saying, you didn't predict that, you didn't know that. And um, I don't think I write, I'm not there to predict what's going to happen. But I feel that there has been a, a failure, a failure of journalism in general, not to know what's been happening for the last couple of years. And we, you know, we need to, we need, and how do we, how we, how do we do that? It's really old-fashioned. It's a bit of reporting, I think, and it's a bit of leaving the centres of power, whether they're, you know, the office or Westminster or whatever. Clearly, people haven't done that enough. And you've been... You mean, obviously, no Brexit, Fab. You, you have been quite critical of Remainers, and there was a, a column just the other day where you sort of said that both sides have their have their delusions. Mm. Um, he said, Leaves and Remainers appear to inhabit different worlds and seem entirely resistant to compromise. Many Remainers I know would happily sign up to border controls around the areas where they live and despise half their fellow citizens, yet continue to see themselves as open-minded people. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know whether I've met any of those. <laughs> or maybe they just haven't told me about the border control plan. But what was it? What, it, what is it that... <sighs> I've really that annoys you on okay. the Remain side. Well, I live in Stoke Newington. Um, my neighbours all had the Remain posters in the windows, which I thought were great because you're all going to vote. You know, who is this for? Because you're clearly all going to vote Remain anyway. And then the day after the bre- after the vote, they turned around and drew a sad face emoji on them. And to me, that's where Remain has stayed. It is basically a sad face emoji. <laughs> uh, there's it's. 
um, the most complex, you know, there was hardly any Remain campaign, let's be honest, and starting with the name, which was always the, the, the most terrible name because Remain is a neutral word, Leave is an active word, Remain is a, has no emotion. You know, you don't say, I love you, remain with me. You say, I love you, stay with me or keep something or anything, any other word. So there was no thought that went into it. Half the people I know, yes, I am slightly taking the piss with saying that, but although a couple of people have actually come up to me and said, I do want borders around where I live. I, I freely would, you know, I would sign up to that. But it it was most people that I knew in London said, I don't know. I mean, how has this happened? I don't know anyone who's voted Brexit. I don't. I mean, how has it happened? And and to me, this was exactly the problem, because you know, Anthony Barnett has a great formulation in in his book, um, The Lear of Greatness, where he talks about basically England without London, which, and that these are the people that voted for Brexit, and and also, in terms of being an antenna or keeping on the ball, he has a quote as well from Brian Eno, who said, you know. We didn't. We missed this revolution. We thought we were the revolution. People missed what was happening. The entire cultural establishment, the entire musical establishment, the entire political establishment, the entire financial establishment spoke as one. And so for me, obviously, if you could, you would stick up two fingers to that. So I wasn't surprised by the Brexit vote. That does. I, I voted Remain, but I really understood that people felt that the in, all these people were telling them what to do, and I and a Brexit for me stems a lot out of what happened in the Scottish um, indie thing, because when Scotland, a lot of people in Scotland said, "You know, we are going to leave the United Kingdom." The reaction of England was not "Don't." It was "Fuck off!" Then. We were not a United Kingdom. We are not a United Kingdom. And somehow, I think Brexit has really exposed that. Well, this is what, you know, I wonder when people say that sort of, you know, Brexit has split Britain. And of course, it you know, you, you can't split a country sort of overnight. It, there has to be, you expose and I guess magnify this divide that was already there. And, you know, I just found myself thinking about looking at, you know, sort of people who voted, leaving people who voted remain. And they just do seem so sort of, you know, I mean, obviously there is overlap and there are people that, you know, that cross that line. But, you know, at, at the kind of the sort of extremes, there is it's completely different in every way. Almost like every value, every identity seems to be different. And I feel like among the many things that, that David Cameron should be, you know, berating himself about every day is actually allowing all of this stuff to be, you know, bringing all this stuff to the surface, but not in a healthy, oh, and now we can mm. fix this, but just kind of like all of this sort of like buried rancour. And uh, I'm not talking here, about, I'm talking about something maybe even more deeper than responses to the, the financial crisis and, mm. and globalisation, but this sort of cultural divide was not created by Brexit, was it? No, I don't think it was created by Brexit. I think all these forces were there, are there. Um, and, you know, we kind of have to face our demons. And some of our demons are, you know, of course there's an element of uh, people voting leave that is absolutely racist. I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and deny that. But there's a lot of other stuff, I think, about how we're governed, what our constitution is, how direct a democracy can be. The failure of the EU, you know, most people, had there been a third option, 
let's stay in the EU, but really, really try and, and change it. I think would have would have gone for that. Probably uh, by a landslide. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people were just shocked on the day in the polling booth by the sort of black and whiteness of the choice. But guess Cameron, and uh, Cameron's got off, Osborne has got off. Osborne, who... You know, whose ideology was austerity, which was one of the things people were voting against, is now still in power in a way. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I've seen a few people, not many, try to talk about how to bridge this divide because I agree with you. I mean, these are this is identity politics at its deepest, really. It is about how people feel not valued in their own country, not part of the, the, the future of the country not part of the wealth of the country. And, and obviously this is economic, but a lot of it is about what we used to call cultural capital. And People feel none. They don't have a purchase on it. I just wonder, because it's on the telly at the moment, are we like the Schlegel sisters in Howard's End? You know, I think it's Margaret Schlegel who says, you know, we're 600 pounders, we have 600 pounds income a year. And all of our thoughts, all of our cultural views were basically stereotyped 600 pounders. And, you know, here we are, the, the sort of middle class media metropolitans. Mm. Of course, we're Remain voters. You know, the, you know, even those of us who actually voted for Theresa May are still Remain voters. Um, you know, we would think this, wouldn't we? We would. You know, we would be in that particular uh, space. I mean, how can we get out of that if, if so? Well, yeah, I mean, it shows that, you know, that this is a device that's like, forced to notice. You know, this is stuff that, like, you know, Orwell noticed. It's just like it's been sort of part of Britain's history for so long to the point where sometimes in the same way that people now that Trump has been elected, people are kind of like ripping their hair out and going, how did we ever think America was not like this? Mm. And in the same way, it's just like, how did... Britain, you know, in the kind of like that new Labour era, it just seemed like it, you know, there seems to be this remarkable cohesion, or that was at least what, on the I, surface. Yeah, was I think possible? there's. Um, for me, I think it just personally, it's something to do with not coming from London, and I don't want to live where I came. You know, I come from Suffolk, and I don't want to go back there ever. But I, um, but I understand how far away you feel from London when you're not, actually not very far outside London. You only have to go about, you don't have to go very far, and it is very, very different. And people feel that they have not had the chances, the opportunities, you know, even the basic rail links. You know, let's be honest, to 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 be part of this sort of booming London thing. But the other bit is that. The idea of London as being, you know, oh, it's great, I've got an Eritrean restaurant at the end of my road and it's all sort of so sort of boho, is actually the total sheer inequality that we live with in London. Um, it does make some of the metropolitan elite stuff about how actually it's all very cosmopolitan seem a bit of a joke. You know, all the, all the office cleaners who come in every day. You know, these are the people at the sharp end of globalisation. These are the people who, um, I don't know if they even, I don't know what they voted. But I mean, certainly the idea that everybody who voted leave, I mean, places like Birmingham are really interesting, aren't they? Because of the way, of the way they voted. And Wales, I mean, I cannot understand Wales mm. voting the way it did. And, and sort of almost kind of what happens with Brexit Aside, what do you think is the most sort of optimistic scenario for? And I suppose what can we on the podcast or whatever, you know, what can people sort of do that might sort of get out of this kind of bitterness and therefore sort of paralysis? Because mm. because you know when you've got a division like this, and it's actually not like the winning side is is driving everything because that's not really working either. 
it's not like a you know they don't it doesn't seem dominant so it just seems that we're kind of stuck and that once these things have been exposed what what's the way forward for the country so that's a very big question solve britain for <laughs> okay. us uh well i think give up the fantasy of a second referendum give up the idea that it's going to be reversed put your energy into um i guess i would call it damage limitation but also i think people have to you know it's a big ask isn't it that that people can find you know some sort of compromise i mean i know it's even in families it, it's it, it's difficult but for me, it comes back to a question of who governs England. I would let Scotland go. I would let Ireland go. I would let Wales go. If God knows, I think Wales is going. And say, well, OK, if you don't want to be governed by Europe, who do you want to be governed by? And how is this going to work? I mean, I think these are really deep constitutional issues, and that's never a, an easy conversation to have. But I think it's about direct democracy and how we do it. And we really have to change the entire system. So... Where are the shared values? There are, there are some here, I think. Hmm. I hope. If you find one of them, then you can tweet us <laughs> <laughs> at RomaniacsCast, hashtag shared values. <laughs> Finally, our next topic is something I've been working on for a few weeks now. On Saturday, Guardian Weekend magazine is publishing my article about regretful Leave voters, which taught me quite a lot. Firstly, that it's surprisingly hard to find people who even talk on the record because of the sensitivity of the issue and distrust of the media in some cases. Secondly... I now think there are a lot of Leave voters, more than I thought out there, with serious reservations. But something big has to happen before they actually switch sides. At the moment, the polls say only 5 to 10% have said they regret voting to Leave, which would be enough to sort of swing the result if we just re-ran it, um, but not enough to sort of really undermine the mandate of Brexit and start making MPs worry about their seats or making Labour, you know, change tack. So I felt like the, the, the direction was promising but something else had to happen. Peter, what did you I'm not not fishing for praise. But what did you sort of what did you sort of take from the kind of from the piece? I think I agree with you and with the pundit that you had in the piece that we can sit here picking over the small moves in what we think is our direction but it to change the, the mass of public opinion something would have to go badly wrong and probably by even by then it would be too late and even you know something you can't rationalize away as he as he, as he put it uh, even then i wonder because obviously the other side is already preparing for the the, the the thing that if it goes wrong it's not that brexit was bad it's because we got a bad deal from those wicked people in brussels so yeah it's uh you know uh the other thing i liked about it is this point of don't writing off the don't knows they're not mm. they're not eternal don't knows they're more thoughtful people but it's funny how often i just generally when i read a poll i ignore the don't knows yeah I just go, oh, well, they're never going to make up their minds. Yeah, but, of yeah. course, you know, the way that, that, that Jane Green from the University of Manchester said that she almost saw that as like a sort of holding pen mm. for people that kind of had reservations. And they could go in, in either direction. And at the moment, it's more likely they'll go in that direction because that's the sort of direction of travel, yeah. which we, felt promising. Yeah, but we've got a structural problem, as you point out in the piece, that... In politics, also in journalism, we tend to regard certainty as a as a virtue. You know, they, they all Dan rather saying that a newsreader should be frequently in error, never in doubt. You know, that, that if you're a if you apply for the job of columnist on the Guardian and you write the old fashioned on the one hand, on the other hand, you don't get the job. Likewise, as a politician, if you've got certainty, you keep bashing away, like say Jacob Rees-Mogg or somebody like that bashing away with your opinions regardless of the fact you're seen somehow as a strong politician if you don't you're a flip-flopper you know if you actually consider the other side of the argument you're a flip-flopper and ask john kerry where that got you, you know. 
that's that's really the crux of the problem, isn't it? That you're not, and it really came out in your piece. I think that people, well, all of us can hold two thoughts at the same time, can hold contradiction within us. And therefore, you know, I mean, I wouldn't write about politics if I didn't think people could change their minds. You know, we wouldn't, you wouldn't be here doing this if you didn't believe that somehow people can change their minds. And uh, I thought the people that you interviewed were incredibly thoughtful, actually. I mean, they had come to their decision and then almost looked at the evidence afterwards been in a hospital realized that nearly everybody who was looking after them was were what they called immigrants and and all, and all of that but i'm not convinced myself that the the regret is enough to change really the direction of travel i don't think it is yet i mean maybe it's just that obviously i am optimistic about possibly mm. you know a second referendum or possibly sort of you know halting mm. brexit in some mm. way i'm one of those kind of um Another you know, statistic which I found really interesting came out of the piece is that a lot of those so-called relievers, remainers who accepted the result, had actually gone back. It had fallen from about six, over 50% to like about 25% and that loads of remainers had become more hardline. And I think that's, that's probably where I am. But yeah, I liked the idea that they were, that they were still thinking. You mm. know, and a lot of people just go, you know, that one of the signs of the people picketing Ian, actually, in Bath was get on with it. And I think get on with it, along with shut your gob, seem to be like the main messages from Brexiters at the moment. And it's this sort of furious, sort of like impatient, it's done, we've made the decision, let's just do it. And I, what I found interesting about the people I spoke to is that they, you know, they had thought about it and they'd made a choice, but they didn't stop thinking about it. Mm. You know, and I've, I found them therefore quite unusual, particularly if they're willing to talk to me, even more unusual. And it made me feel more optimistic about, you know, we've been talking so much about polarisation and people living in sort of bubbles of their own facts and never sort of crossing over. And I think everybody that changed their mind, and the last thing you should do, which I know some people do, is go, well, told you so. You know, well, why didn't you? It's a bit late now. And it's like, you can, you can never say that, mm. you know. There's a bit in the Bible about it, isn't there? You know, yes. you kind of like, more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. I was most interested by the Lexit guy, the guy from Livingston that you interviewed, who voted on Lexit grounds and then uh, afterwards realised, hang on a second, I voted the way the most right-wing people in the Conservative Party wanted me to to vote. Um, I don't like that. Now, it was all the more interesting if the possibility is that we get a, a Labour government in the, ne- the next election. And, of course, Labour has shifted. Uh, Keir Starmer has moved the party's line somewhat, although not as far as I would like it to see him do it. You know, this is this is what's interesting. If somehow the Labour Party moves its position further by the time we get... Let's suppose we do get an election before Brexit and they move further, will we now see a lot of people who vote Labour but voted to leave thinking again because the party's saying it's all right to think again? Does the party, in other words, have their influence over its voters? On the last election, what I heard from people on the doorstep, that Brexit wasn't actually the number one issue for a lot of people. I mean, that's another thing to remember. But when when you talk about changing things, um, one of the things I would like to happen, and I'm probably guilty of it as well, but that the way that Remainers talk to leavers is basically you are stupid, you are wrong, the things you think are wrong, the things you feel are wrong. Now, there's no persuasion there. 
Well, the, I do actually think you have to persuade well, the guy people. in the piece who says that he was kind of wavering and he spoke to a Remain friend who basically treated him like he was a, a, a racist. Yes, it doesn't work. And it kind of alienates exactly. Him. Yeah, I, I think I think there's there's still you know I mean I know Twitter isn't everything, but you can see how the arguments are, and it's basically just people shouting at each other, and that's not really going to change anyone's mind. I, I'm sort of hopeful for a sort of better approach, even though I know that in myself I can also be quite kind of shouty <laughs> so the article will be in the Guardian weekend magazine on Saturday please share it with the wobbly lever in your life and show them that it's not too late to have second thoughts and that brings us to the end of our show thanks to Peter who's struggled manfully through what appears to be developing into pneumonia it's just a fit of the snivels <laughs> right. Right, yes <laughs> and a very special thanks to Suzanne Moore as ever we'll play out with Demon is a Monster our smash hit theme tune by Corner Shop available now on all digital music platforms and of course a roll call of some of our beloved Patreon backers if you'd like to mention yourself plus Romaniacs mugs, bags and t-shirts then visit our Patreon page via Romaniacs.com and pledge us a small contribution until next time here's a sign off in German from listener Anna Bernica Tschüss und danke fürs gut zuhören Thanks on behalf of Romaniacs to Graham Lear, Hugh Lawson, Rory Eagleston, Martin Ford Downs, Tim Schofield, Tim Weaver, Paul Williams and Iona Mitchell. And finally, thanks to Vicky Riches, Andy Hawthorne, Tim Sleeth, Ian, Tarquin Shrapnel Carruthers. <laughs> <laughs> Surely a, a kind of rogue member of the Rees-Mogg clan. No, no, it's the, it's the Shrapnel Carruthers of Caterham. Surely you know them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mix in those circles. Darling. <laughs> Joyce Johns, Kate Wood, and Anne Jensen. If we haven't read out your name yet, don't worry, there'll be more next week. We'll see you in the future where we once were. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Peter Collins. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall, and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.